0: Hello and welcome to the commentary for Lesson 350. This is Amos chapters 1 through 3. So I'll be honest, I didn't like this reading, so I plowed through. I read three chapters and I figured, well, you know, nobody really loves, first of all, I don't love the wartime stories and nobody really likes reading about God's wrath and judgment, right? So I figured, well, we can get through Amos a lot quicker if I just plow through. So I read three chapters. So the reading was a little bit long. However, in my studies, because I did still try to give it due diligence, even though I didn't love the reading, um, I found out a lot of cool stuff. So hopefully this won't be too long. But I will start out by saying, um, in Amos chapter 1, it says, This message was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. Um, He received this message in visions two years before the earthquake. So I want to say a couple things about that. First, Amos is a prophet for God. I love that he was also a shepherd. We see throughout the Bible that God loves to use shepherds because I think they're more available to him. He was from the land of Judah, but he actually prophesied for about 10 years to the northern land of Israel. And so he has this message and visions of an earthquake and two years before it happens. And interestingly enough, a later prophet, Zechariah, refers back to that earthquake. So I just like to find the connections in the Bible. And so I wanted to read that to you. It's Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. And here he's warning the people of Israel about God's wrath and the coming doom. And, you know, prophets are so popular when they bring all that gloom and doom news. And he refers back, like I said, to the earthquake mentioned in Amos 1. So here's what he says. He says, you will flee as you did from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. So I just wanted to share that connection with you because I like that. Um, so we go through the prophecy of Amos. He's clearly talking about the enemies of Israel, all of the nations that surround Israel and God's wrath is going to come down on them. And so you can be sure, you know, that the Israelites are going, yeah, take that enemy nations when they're hearing all this prophecies of all this doom and wrath, that's going to come down on their enemies. But. Then we see in Amos 2, then he starts talking about Judah and Israel. Now, this is hitting a little closer to home. So they they go from, yeah, take that, enemy nations, to, wait, what? So I'm sure they were surprised by that, and we'll get to that. But um, I want to back up just a couple things that I noted in chapter 1. It says... This is what he saw and heard from the Lord. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. So that's God's wrath. That's he is angry with them. They have not been following after him. And God is merciful and patient and kind. And he wants to bless his people. But there comes a point where he has to say enough is enough. And it says, um, the lush pastures of the shepherds will dry up. The grass on Mount Carmel will wither and die. Now, my study Bible points out that Carmel means fertile field. So it's the fact that it's pointing to, to Mount Carmel as an example and saying this will wither and die and the pastures will dry up. This was fertile land. It was great soil and they, Hardly ever had a drought there. So that just gives you an idea of the seriousness of the drought. And then we talk about, and you you saw the repeated phrase where it kept saying, this is what the Lord says, the people of, insert nation here, have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. So God is just saying, enough is enough. This is what you all are doing, and this is what's going to happen to you. And so he goes First to Damascus, he's talking to Damascus, then he's talking to Gaza, then he's talking to Tyre, then he's talking to Edom, then Ammon, then Moab. These are all enemies of Israel. And Amos is declaring prophecy of God's wrath against those nations. A couple interesting things about the different nations that I wanted to point out. First of all, when it talks about um, Damascus, In the first section, it says in verse five, I will break down the gates of Damascus and slaughter the people in the Valley of Avon. I will destroy the ruler in Beth Eden and the people of Aram will go as captives to Kerr. Now, saying that to those people, Aram is like saying to the Israelites that they will go back to Egypt. And the reason um, Bible scholars say that is because if you look forward in Amos chapter 9 verse 7 it says are you Israelites more important to me than the Ethiopians asks the Lord I brought Israel out of Egypt but I also brought the Philistines from Crete and led the Arameans out of Kerr so that lets the reader know that at some point the Arameans were captive in Ker. And so here he's saying they will return to Kurd. They will have to go back into captivity as part of their punishment. Then he goes and speaks to Gaza and then Tyre and Edom. Now, Edom, this is interesting. The Edomites and the Israelites were all descendants of Isaac. I had forgotten that. Remember, there was Isaac who had two sons who were twins, Jacob and Esau. Right. Or Esau, I should say Esau and Jacob, because Esau was the oldest. He had the birthright Um, and Jacob finagled himself to get the birthright and the blessing from his father. But anyways, so the Edomites were the descendants of Esau and the Israelites were the descendants of Jacob. But both Israelites and Edomites were descendants of Isaac. Make sense? Okay, just interesting. I like those little nuggets. And these two nations were always fighting, which if you remember when Esau and Jacob were born, I think, um, and it made that connection that those brothers would always fight and those nations would always fight. So here we see that play out. Um, then we get to the people of Ammon. The Ammonites were descendants of Lot and his younger daughter. Now, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38, this is sick and twisty, but Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, he was, I guess, kind of stranded and they, they, the daughters, he was with his daughters and they were concerned about the future of their family that they would die out. And so they got him drunk and they seduced him and had, and he ended up sleeping with his own daughters. It's a sick and twisty story. Um, look it up if you want. But anyways, so the descendants of Lot and his younger daughter, those descendants became the Ammonites, okay? And now the Moabites were the descendants of Lot and his older daughter. So the Ammonites and the Moabites were all descendants from those incestuous relationships, Sick and twisty, but just gives you an idea of who they are and where they come from. Now, this is cool. I found out that there is an archaeological artifact called the Moabite Stone. And the Moabites were famous for all of their atrocities. This Moabite Stone was found in 1868, and it now is in the Louvre Museum in Paris. So that's cool. I always like to find archaeological or hear or read about archaeological evidence of the Bible. So this was a Moabite stone. If you want to look it up in Wikipedia, there's a lot of interesting information in there. But basically, it's kind of a cool story. It was discovered intact, but the two men who discovered it, neither of them could read the language. It was written in the Moabite language. Um, Some say it was the Phoenician alphabet. Others say it was Old Hebrew script. But in either case, neither of the two men that had found it could read the text. And then, according to Wikipedia, it says, before it could be seen by another European, the next year it was smashed by local villagers during a dispute over its ownership. So they had this huge stone that's about, I think, four feet by three feet or something like that. And... It's got all these inscriptions and basically it's the story of the Moabite king and all of his conquests and all of the things that he did. And there's some records of of Israel in there. He references Israel. So apparently the story written on the stone is similar in many ways to the account in 2 Kings 3 um, verses 4 through 8 where the Moabites and the Israelites are at war. And so a lot of it's about that. So this is just cool. I just wanted to share that with you. Um, Then moving on. So God then talks about, he switches gears from talking about the wrath that's going to pour out on the enemies of Israel. Now in chapter two, like I said, he starts focusing on Judah and Israel. And says the same thing again. The people of Judah have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. Okay, I want to read a note from my study Bible regarding how God is switching gears here. It says, Perhaps the people of Israel cheered when they heard the rebukes leveled against those nations. But Amos, but then Amos proclaimed God's judgment on the people of Israel. They could not excuse their own sin just because the sins of their neighbors seemed worse. God judges all people fairly and impartially. It says, The other nations were ignorant, but Judah and Israel, God's people, knew what God wanted. Still, they ignored him and joined pagan nations in worshiping idols. If we know what God's word says and refuse to obey it, like Israel, our guilt is greater than those who are ignorant of it. Okay, so as God is going through this message, this prophecy to his own people, we get to an interesting place in verses 10 and 11, and I'm just going to read those. It says, It was I who rescued you from Egypt and led you through the desert for 40 years so you could possess the land of the Amorites. I chose some of your sons to be prophets and others to be Nazarites. Now I want to remind you that Nazarites was something we read long ago, and it's basically um, people that were set apart for service to God. They kind of made an oath to God. The vow included abstaining from wine and never cutting their hair. But instead of being respected for their disciplined and temperate lives, they were being urged to break their vows. If the Nazarites were corrupted, there would remain little influence for good among the Israelites. So that was the beginning of their trouble, right? They turned bad to good. And when there's no good people left, it all starts to crumble. And yeah, in verse twelve it says, But you caused the Nazarites to sin by making them drink wine, and you commanded the prophets to shut up. So yeah. You got rid of all the good people, and that's the beginning of the end. So um then in on verse six in verse sixteen, Amos says, On that day the most courageous of your fighting men will drop their weapons and run for their lives, says the Lord. So Now, Amos is referring to a time where even the mightiest, most boastful, arrogant warriors who think they're tough stuff, they're going to drop their weapons and run, which is obviously a sign of cowardness, that God's wrath and his punishment that he will dole out will be so frightening and so swift and just that there will be nowhere for them to go to safety. And this prophecy is fulfilled about 30 to 40 years later. Assyrians will attack Israel, they will destroy Samaria, and they will take the people captive. Verse, or chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel and Judah, against the entire family I rescued from Egypt. From among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all your sins. Sometimes we don't like being corrected. We don't like being punished. We don't like trials in our life. And not all of our trials come from God. Some of them just come as a result of our stupid choices. Um, But sometimes they do. And we can think of those times, and I've referred to scripture about this before that has helped me. James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So God does use trials sometimes. Um, This is an extreme trial. He's going to allow his people to be conquered. And oppressed for a time. But we see that cycle continuously in Israel. So then we have in Amos chapter 3, he's warning Israel that they've become too proud. Verse 6 says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has planned it? Indeed, the sovereign Lord never does anything until he reveals his plan to his servants, the prophets. God always gives a warning Before judgment, he's giving them a chance. I mean, this is mercy. He's giving them a chance to repent and come back to him. But at some point, the time for repentance is over. We see that later in verse 11. It says, Therefore, says the sovereign Lord, an enemy is coming. He's referring to Assyria. Verse 10 says, My people have forgotten how to do right, says the Lord. Their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft and violence. God cares. He doesn't hate wealth. Money is not evil, but the love of money is. There is ample, ample scripture about how we earn our money, how we get our money. We must do it through fair and just means. And anyone who gets money or gets wealth from oppressing others, scripture speaks vehemently and directly against that i mean it's pretty obvious okay then we go down to verse 14 it says on the very day i punish israel for its sins i will destroy the pagan altars at bethel now bethel used to be the holy place of the lord that's where they need to go to go to the holy temple to worship god but they have desecrated so bad these are pagan altars now and it says the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. My study Bible says that the horns of the altar stood for protection. So the protection that those false false gods gave them doesn't stand against God. Verse 15, and I will destroy the beautiful homes of the wealthy, their winter mansions and their summer houses too. All their palaces filled with ivory, says the Lord. So I'm going to read a little summary about Amos from my study Bible, because this kind of made it really, it just kind of brought it all together. It says, Amos served as a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom, for about 10 years from 760 to 750 BC. Israel was enjoying peace and economic prosperity. But this blessing had caused her to become a selfish, materialistic society. Those who were well off ignored the needs of those less fortunate. The people were self-centered and indifferent towards God. So in Israel during this time, there were two classes. There were the wealthy and there were the poor. There was no middle class. And so what was happening was the wealthy were becoming arrogant, proud, And they were oppressing the poor, which, of course, made their circumstance worse and worse. So it says that the important message to take away from this is believing in God is more than a matter of individual faith. God calls all believers to work against injustices in society and to aid those less fortunate. We are commanded to to care for one another and look out for the well-being of those that are struggling and so these were God's people. They knew they were God's people and they got a little haughty and they got a little too comfortable. And so um, God has to put them back in their place. So I will, I do have to end with a positive note. So I'm just going to read this. It says the people of Israel no longer knew how to do what was right. The more they sinned, the harder it was to remember what God wanted. The same is true for us. The longer we wait to deal with sin, the longer the hold it has on us. Finally, we forget what it means to do right. Are we on the verge of forgetting? So that's something we can take to heart. Something we can take away here from this is that are we allowing pride and comfort to take its hold and make us not pay attention to those around us that are suffering. We need to always be watchful for that and um, follow God's word, which tells us to help people. And we don't have to help everybody. I heard a great quote that said, God doesn't want you to do everything for everybody. You don't have to do everything, but you have to do something. And it's usually the thing he put right in front of you. Love that. So that's it for today. I hope you all have a great day. I will talk to you soon.